Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And in truth, he might have been hung, but the French and Indian War fortunately intervened, and his wilderness experience essentially became his get-out-of-jail-free card. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Scott Smith talking about the life and career of Robert Rogers, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Scott Smith. And he'll be discussing Robert Rogers, one of the most famed commanders of the American frontier. Rogers is one of those incredibly important people that's often lost in the larger story of the American Revolution, mainly because his great achievements come in the service of the crown during the Seven Years' War. During the Seven Years' War, there seems to be this uh, sense that Rogers today was fighting for the us instead of the them, fighting for the British instead of the French. Uh, But as soon as the Revolution begins, and he stays loyal to his original cause, uh, things get a little bit murky for most readers and historians uh, because who is the us and who is the them switches. Now the them, of course, is the British and the us is the Americans. So Robert Rogers gets lost in one of these kind of sort of strange seven years war American Revolution dynamics. But he's an important character nevertheless. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Scott Smith. Scott Smith, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tell us about your background. Great. Well, I always wanted to write, but I detoured through the investment world with some success for 35 years. But as I wound down my Wall Street career in the the 2010-2015 times, I finally began to dabble in creative writing. First up was short stories. Then I wrote two contemporary cybersecurity thrillers, which were based upon my investment experiences, and self-published them. In 2017, I decided to shift to history. I just found I loved research, and I loved sort of going down the rabbit holes that research provides. Hamilton, the musical on Broadway, really got me thinking about the revolution. And I live in Connecticut, so you had all the revolutionary war sites up and down the East Coast that were exciting places to visit. I found I could easily spend all day in a museum or reading 18th century correspondence. So I started to focus there. I picked as my lead character, Nathan Hale, who is my, the, the state hero of my home state of Connecticut. Spent three years writing what I would call a biographical novel based on Nathan Hale's life and times. It's called But One Life. And in it, I tried to bring sort of a thriller writer's perspective to historical fiction. And that book, But One Life, is now out for sale in the publishing community by my agent. In the meantime, I wanted to stay focused on the revolution and keep writing and researching. So I began to write for the Journal of the American Revolution. 
What first drew your interest into this topic? Robert Rogers captured Nathan Hale on Long Island in 1776. So he was sort of the villain and an important character in my book, But One Life. And as of, you know, if, if you watch Turn, the series on AMC, you saw Robert Rogers lives larger than life. He was the founder and commander of Rogers Rangers, America's first special forces unit. And he arguably became America's first celebrity back in the day before Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook. He was on the front page of a lot of newspapers. So I thought he'd be an interesting guy. And I had done a lot of work researching his life for my Nathan Hale book. Talk about Rogers' early life. Sure. He grew up in the New Hampshire wilderness. Um, his, his father pioneered a, a farm, Montaluna, Montaluna, out there. He joined the local militia at age 15 to defend his family farm against Indian raids that were spurred by the French during King George's War. But you know, to some extent, he failed because the Abenakis burned down his family farm in 1748. Um, as the King George's War ended, Rogers dropped out of the militia sort of wandered around the wilderness, I guess, for a while. He got arrested for counterfeiting in 1755. And in truth, he might have been hung, but the French and Indian War fortunately intervened, and his wilderness experience essentially became his get-out-of-jail-free card. He was able to raise a company of rangers, you know, fortuitously for the judge who was going to rule, on his, uh, rule in his trial, and he went to war. So he essentially you know, traded a jail cell for a captaincy. Briefly discuss why he was considered the most famous commander in North America. Sure. Well, he captured, I think, the independent spirit of the 13 colonies. You know, he was that story that everybody wanted to hear, a backwoodsman from humble roots. And he really took the war to the Indians. And I'm going to use the term Indians consistently here just because that's the term that was largely used at the time though I understand it's not the term we would use if we were writing things today. But, you know, the, the Indians and the settlers, the pioneers, were arch enemies, and the warfare was brutal and violent and massacres and scalpings and rapings and just nasty stuff. So the Indians were the most hated enemy on the continent, anyone living along the frontier. Now, the frontier was western Pennsylvania, because upstate Massachusetts, the, and the, upstate New York, the Vermont area, so areas that we would consider pretty settled today, were the were the frontier there. Um, and Rogers was the one who took the spirit, took the the battle to the to the enemy. His most famous um, escapade was the raid on the village of St. Francis in 1759, where he and his men basically went through the wilderness for you know almost three months to reach St. Francis. Just a horribly nasty experience and bogged down. Um, but they came upon the village asleep. They massacred pretty much everyone um, and came home. And the French and the, and the Indians followed them home. Was, they ran out of food early in the, in the trip home. They knew that if they were caught, it would really be, it would, they would be tortured horribly. So it was, it was just one of those, uh, you know, we use the term today, a baton death march. Um, there were talks of cannibalism on the way home. Um, when Rogers finally got sort of, quote, near civilization, the Connecticut River, there was supposed to be a supply boat left there for him and his men, but the, but the soldiers who were with the supply boat had left early, thinking Rogers wasn't going to make it back. So basically emaciated and exhausted, he had to make the rest of the way down to Crown Point, 
finally come back with food um, for his men. So I think he lost almost a third, maybe half of his his forces. But he was the, the raid was just considered a huge success because they went into Indian territory and French territory and struck home. So that was it was just captured the imagination of the people. Bells were ringing in Philadelphia when he came in. Um, he was also a he was also good at self promotion and he picked the right time to sort of be a hero because you just in the 1750s had the rise of newspapers, tabloids, broadsheets, whatever you want to call them, and they were looking for heroes. Remember, the French and Indian War started off pretty badly for the English. George Washington stumbled at force necessity. Braddock got massacred on the Mahonghola. Never get that one right. Um, so, it's, you know, Abercrombie got slaughtered at the entrance to Ticonderoga. So having a, everyone wanted a hero. Everyone wanted a victory. Rogers was the man. He, and he promoted himself. He, he, got, he got himself the coverage. Talk about Rogers' financial woes after the Seven Years' War. Sure. Well, you know, like many commanders of the day, Rogers borrowed and used his own money to fund his regiment. Now, in many cases, most cases, the commanders were, quote, gentlemen who maybe had some access to family money or certainly had access to credit. Um, Rogers really expected the British government to pay him back. And you could see, when I mentioned before, that he was arrested for counterfeiting he, he could play fast and loose with money, so I don't want to claim him as, as totally naive here. Um, but he expected the British government to pay him back. He was never really too good at record-keeping. Remember, he was out in the wilderness most of the time, um, fighting, surviving. Even in the winters, they would winter um, in the wilderness. So it, it wasn't the kind of place where you kept detailed records. Um, so after the war, you know, he put his, his bills in as they were to get paid. The British were largely stuck for cash. The, the, the balance sheet of Great Britain after the Seven Years' War was horrible. And the British leadership didn't like provincials anyway. So there was certainly no rush to pay him back. And when his records were sparse at best, it was easy to delay or say no. And then you, then you layer on top of that Thomas Gage, who was the commander-in-chief um, for the British Army in North America after 1763, he had really personal reasons to hate Robert Rogers. Rogers had grabbed the headlines while Gage really had been pilloried for inaction. In two or three battles, Mahangahila, um, Ticonderoga, Fort Gallat, Gage just never attacked. And he sort of earned the nickname the old woman while Rogers had grabbed the headlines. So there was no love lost here at all. Gage had sort of begun to develop his own ranger unit. He just he he had no interest in Rogers, and then sort of layering on top of that, Thomas Gage's mentor was Sir William Johnson, who was by 1770 really become the second largest landholder in the colony, second to William Penn. And Johnson had huge had built his real estate empire on a huge trading empire with the with the Indians, trading furs. Um, and now Rogers, who had great relationships with the Indians was stepping up and getting more involved. So Rogers um, got arrested for his debt, debts in 1764. Gage, no one was rushing to pay him back. He was in jail in New York. He was actually liberated by a mob of ex-rangers and, and people who you know, were in love with the figure. So it sounds like you know, a little bit of what happens in our country sometimes these, these days. Well, it was our country, but what's happened in modern times. So he escaped from jail. He fled to London to raise money as, as well as a new command. Um, while he was in London in 1765, he wrote two books, his journals, which he published 
and what was called a concise account of North America. Um, those books became bestsellers. Again, adding to his legend, um, he, you know, as he said, he traveled further on the continent than any other man alive on the North American continent than any other man alive. His dream was to to lead an expedition to find the Northwest Passage to the Pacific Ocean. He tried to get funding here for his dream. He actually had a personal meeting with King George, um, but in 1765. But again, the British really didn't have the cash. Um, he did get the command of the, for the westernmost fort in the colonies at McKillimackinac, um, where so he, which he gladly accepted. It would be an opportunity for him to personally make some money trading and start to pay his debts, but also be a great launch point for his Northwest Passage. So he sails back to America in the 1760s to take over his position in Michalimackinac. But his commander-in-chief, his, his direct report was to Thomas Gage and Sir William Johnson, who basically hated him. So it was a tough time for him. So he was in debt. He, he just didn't have the assets, the personal resources, family resources to repay um, again, many other leaders of the time were also in debt, but they sort of somehow managed to buy themselves some time where Rogers really ran out of time, and, and largely because of Thomas Gage and Sir William Johnson's dislike of him. Describe his imprisonment and what he did upon release. Well, he was actually imprisoned several times. <laughs> Excuse me. So, as I said, in, in New York in 1764, just in for a short time and got freed by the mob. But the worst was in 1767 and 1768. He was a com- commander at Michilimackinac and um, was was launching, planning his, his Northwest Passage expedition, was working on improving relations with the natives, with the Indians out there. Remember, that West quote, Western frontier had been the, the, the site of Pontiac's uprising in 1763. Um, so there was a fair amount of negotiating and, and just treaty building that he, that he had to do. So he went out of his way to give gifts to the Indians, to engage them in trading, showed them that, you know, in his mind that he was being fair with them and that the British government relied heavily on them. But that really stirred up the unrest with Thomas Gage back in Boston and, again, Gage's mentor, Sir William Johnson, who had no interest in a man like Robert Rogers becoming a senior intermediary with the Indians out west. So they basically trumped up some charges. Johnson sent out a a crony of his to work under Rogers at Michilimackinac. Uh, And he he instead was sort of keeping a record on anything that Rogers did that was out of the ordinary, you know, for example, giving gifts to the to the natives, which was sort of standard practice. And in earlier memos, William Johnson talks about how important it is. But now William Johnson and Gage come back and say Rogers committed treason. He never had permission to give these gifts. You know, we're talking about trinkets, really, to the Indians, as well as rum and blankets and muskets. Um, so it was, it was an array of, of goods. I don't want to say just trinkets there um, overall. But they they basically Gage and Johnson trumped up charges to arrest, have have Rogers arrested for treason. They kept him locked, chained, frozen, and basically barely fed for almost a year. They had to shift him back from the west to Montreal to stand charges in October 1768, and he was pretty quickly acquitted on all those charges. Um, so that was the good news. But he wasn't reinstated. He wasn't reimbursed um, for any of his 
expenses, and he wasn't even released to travel again um, for another six months. He had us cooped up in Montreal, so he ended up in more debt than ever before. He, as soon as he could travel, he went back to London again. The only place he could really, he had his patrons where he thought he could raise some money and raise a command, but the stain of treason really haunted him. So he ended up in jail again in 1772. And on the process from 1767 through 1775, he really missed the whole buildup to the revolution in the colonies. When he left America in 1765, it was a vastly different place, much more subservient to the British crown. 1765, you had the Stamp Act and, and everything just sort of um, avalanche downhill from there. And he missed it. He was in London for almost all that time or far out west um, looking to, to go further west to find the Northwest Passage. So his the imprisonment, the treason trial in 1768 really sort of stabbed the knife in Roger's back. He, he really couldn't recover from that in, in any good way. Why was Roger so distrusted when he came back to North America? I think that's a great question. And, and I think if, if, if anything, that's really the the turning point of my piece. What, what, my article, what happened to him? So let, let's try to look at it from both sides here. You know, Rogers had been a famous military commander, a very successful military commander, and we're going into war. So you sort of think people either side would want him. So it was easy to see on the British side because Gage was commander in chief in 1775 when Rogers came back. Gage hated him. You know, and he had 20 years of of feud and jealousy. Um, so Gage wasn't going to do anything for him. And, and remember, in 1775, Gage had had just had the battles of Lexington, Concord, um, Bunker Hill. So he, his star had dimmed completely. He had a lot more on his mind than Robert Rogers overall. But there was no way Gage was going to employ Rogers. Um, it was tougher going to see on the American side why George Washington wouldn't have been more open to Rogers. You know, George Washington and his correspondence, you could see he wanted the Indians to fight for his cause. And, and even probably more importantly, he desperately feared that tribes would fight against him. Robert Rogers, when he came back to America in the summer of 75, was sort of dubbed the commander in chief of the Indians. So, you know, you could think in that respect, Washington might have recruited him rather than repelled him. But nevertheless, Washington certainly didn't do that. Now, in Washington's defense, Rogers never really stated a political opinion. He never publicly declared for either side, so no one really knew where he stood. And Rogers held a commission in the British Army. You could explain that away as saying it was the only source of income. He didn't have a command, and he needed the money. That's where he was. Um, but Washington was, you know, would cite that as the reason for his mistrust of Rogers. I would also add to it that Washington had Horatio Gates and Charles Lee as generals on his staff, and they were doing their best to undermine him. And then when, when Rogers finally met George Washington, it was late June of 1976, Washington had actually had Rogers arrested um, in New Jersey. And, and again, Rogers looked suspicious. He was traveling around the countryside. There had been some letters to Washington saying, Rogers was up in Canada, he was stirring up the Indians, he was dressed in Indian gear, the papers, the newspapers were saying Rogers was commander-in-chief of the Indians, and at the same time, by late June 76, George Washington was reeling from the, the, the hickey plot to assassinate him, 
which was masterminded most likely by Governor William Tryon, who Rogers had met with to look um, when he was in the States. So even though Rogers was never implicated in the plot to assassinate Washington, Washington still ha- had him arrested and shipped on to Philadelphia. So that, I, I think there was a lot of personal issues, personal divisiveness here. Washington and Gage, both, and Thomas Gage, both had largely floundered in the French and Indian War while Rogers had shined. Both Washington and Gage were aristocrats, you know, Gage by birth, by birth Roger, um, Washington by his marriage to Martha, while Rogers was a backwoodsman of low birth. And they just couldn't stand to see him be successful. So, you know, I guess, you know, summing it up there, there were largely personal reasons, but arguably professional reasons. If Rogers had come out and said he was staunchly as a staunch patriot, would things have been different? He would have had to uh, walk away from his commission in the British Army, which, again, is his only source of income. The Continental Army couldn't afford to pay anybody. He, Rogers is in a difficult place. He, he also could have been arrested, um, arrested again for, de- for his debts. So he was looking to get, he was looking to sell his services to the highest bidder. And in effect, for a while, there were no bidders. How did he recreate Rogers Rangers? Good question. So the one person, you know, who in command, who really valued Rogers was William Howe. So by October 75, Howe, you know, Gage just sails back to England. Howe is now the commander in chief. Uh, Howe is planning his assault on New York City come with about coming up to Brooklyn. So we're talking early August 1776. Rogers is in Philadelphia. Congress is debating the Declaration of Independence and, and basically shunts Rogers off to, to, to New Hampshire, sort of plans to ship him back to New Hampshire for trial. And essentially, and Rogers had now been in jail, shipped back across the continent several times. He wasn't going to let it happen. He escaped from jail. He evaded bounty hunters and got to General Howe on a ship off of Staten Island. Howe pretty much immediately reinstated Rogers to command to start up Rogers Rangers again. Howe had been a, was a light infantry commander, had fought well at during the French and Indian War um, on the Plains of Abraham. Howe's brother, Howe's older brother, had actually been Rogers' mentor during that war. So there was there there well, I could never find any documentation that William Howe and Robert Rogers spent much time together. There was clearly a, a respect for each other, and Howe immediately reinstated him to command. So this time Rogers is raising his Queens Rangers from city boys, what I would call it at the time, in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, not the hardy backwoodsmen of his original Rangers um, up in the North Woods and set in during the end of the Seven Years' War. He recruited pretty much anyone he could. Remember, by 76, a lot of the, the best candidates for soldiers on, on Tory or Patriot had already gone off to war. So Rogers got what he could get. The black and white, rich and poor, merchants, farmers, they were not nearly as good fighters as his early rangers. And by this time, the British Army had begun to build its own ranger units. So there was a feeling that why do we need Rogers Rangers anymore? So we ran into what I would say was significant prejudice within the British Army at this point. Um, for George Washington still feared him. You could see the, the letters I cited in the in the article where Washington and other senior people on the Patriot side are constantly monitoring where Rogers is. Um, but he just, he doesn't have the clout within the British army. And you can see, you know, his final, that Rogers final 
battle, if you will, was in the Maranek just before the, on Heathcote Hill before the Battle of White Plains. And you could see where he was positioned on the point that Hal obviously had trust in him to put him in that position. Um, and in fact, Rogers, although he was surprised, had reorganized his men to withstand the surprise, with, essentially repelled the Patriot advance, but some of the Patriot commanders got to bragging that they had finally defeated the famous Robert Rogers. So that was one more nail in his coffin back in Brooklyn, back in the British Army. Uh, again, Hal kept his confidence in them. The Rangers were still going strong in, in, in November, December, January 1776 and early 1777. But the, the, the tide was really building up against them. There was an inquiry into the Rangers and that, that came out badly for Rogers. Again, mostly because of the kinds of people he recruited more than any serious battle flaws. But the net result was this time, um, this time Alexander Innes, who was the inspector general of the provisional forces, came out with a recommendation to Howe that you had to get rid of Rogers and get rid of the Rangers. And, and Howe basically did. So the, Rogers, there's no, there's no issue that there's no documentation that Rogers really fought this judgment. But there is documentation that most of his officers were treated well and given uh, given back, given severance pay, if you will. And so I sort of surmise that Rogers sort of made a deal with General Howe to treat his men well in return for him fading into the sunset. How does this story end for us? Uh, you know, it, it, Rogers' life goes downhill pretty quickly after he gets booted out of the British Army. So I really didn't spend much time there. You know, he tries to raise another, raise another Ranger reg- regiment, gets arrested again. He finally goes back to England for good in 1783 when the British finally evacuated New York and North America. He, he dies in ignominy, ignominy back in London. But I, I really wanted to focus the end of the article on Rogers' enduring legacy and, and what's really come down through the ages. And the two key points there was his fervent belief in continental expansion and that, you know, that clearly you know, with the Louisiana Purchase and the march westward of America, he was dead on right on that one. And his ranger tactics, which is still taught to Special Forces troops today. Rogers had written an entire book outlining his tactics for battle in the wilderness and in battle in a ranger situation. And those are still preeminent in the military today. So his legacy is, has, as a warrior, as an explorer, really exceeded certainly his accomplishments during the revolution. Scott, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? I think the revolution exposed deep class divisions in colonial society. Now, when I started my research as a sort of a neophyte, I sort of thought everybody was sort of cheering for George Washington and the rebellion, but that clearly wasn't the case. And, and there are several books that make the case that the revolution is as much class warfare as political warfare. So I think this article you know, exposes the difference, again, where you have Rogers, a backwoodsman, no formal education, bumping up against George Washington and Thomas Gage, who were aristocrats and, and basically were, were successfully able to put him down, even though, you know, certainly up until 76, Rogers clearly had a better military resume than either of those generals. 
And then secondly, I, I think what's very much in line with our times today where we're reexamining history, this article I think points out that our revolutionary heroes had personal flaws and prejudices that were largely in line with their socioeconomic class. And those are very important to understand those prejudices, to understand how the, the battles and how this, the structure of command really evolved. Scott Smith, thank you for joining us. So I hope I was successful in that, and I hope I, I created an article that was interesting to read and a character that's really dynamic. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.